0: We are in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 14. And um, this is Passion Week, this is Holy Week that uh, the Mark is covering here. And this um, this, this passage that we're gonna study we're gonna start studying, I'm gonna start in verse 12. All of these things are not unique to Mark. What I wanna try to do is focus on the one or two elements in each one of these narratives or Mark is saying something a little different, or maybe I should say better, adding something that the other Gospels. Because remember, each Gospel writer—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—is arguing a thesis about Jesus. It's not a biography, you know. It's not a—it's uh, not a birth to death account, although it, they are the two bookends. It's trying to argue something about Jesus. Matthew is arguing that Jesus is the Davidic king who has the right to claim the Davidic throne. First 10 chapters, he offers proof of that. Um, Luke is trying to argue that he is that son of man, Daniel 7, uh, 13 figure, and he offers the proof. uh, 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 Luke uses that phrase, son of man and love. John is trying to prove that Jesus is the incarnate God. Mark is writing to Romans, Greco-Roman people. And his his account is a fast-paced, I use the metaphor of a docudrama, a fast-paced presentation of Jesus. He doesn't go into a lot of Jewish idioms. He doesn't deal with a lot of Jewish, because the regular people wouldn't understand it anyway. So he's trying to prove to them that Jesus is, and go back to the very first verse. this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So he's going to prove that. And so today what we're looking at is how does he, what does he emphasize when he's, he's focusing on Jesus passion his suffering. And, and we're just about there because in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, that means it's Thursday. And, and then what I said just last week, I'm going to remind you of this in and they, of course they don't do that today because they don't offer sacrifices. But Passover and Unleavened Bread, Passover is one day followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They ran together. And so sometimes even in the New Testament writers when they mention Passover or the Passover Feast, they're talking about all these days. So we have, we're just about at Passover and they're getting ready to offer the Passover lamb which will occur. His disciples said to him, where will we? you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Again, I, I think you know this, but I'll remind you of this. Passover celebrates their liberation from Egypt in slavery in 1446 BC. And it, it, it is a meal where as you eat the meal, each element of the meal is, has a symbolic value relating to their, their freedom, their liberation from bondage in Egypt. And so they would eat this together. It's a time of family, of friends, of fellowship to remember and reflect on all that God had done for them in liberating them. And so they're saying, uh, in effect, Jesus, where do you want us to celebrate the Passover meal? Because they don't own property. They don't own a house. You know, Jerusalem isn't their hometown. So they're going to have to rent a place. And he said to his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Whenever he enters, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared, prepared for us. So there are two ways of looking at this. Either one, Jesus had prearranged all this, or two, this indicates the sovereignty and providence of the incarnate God, you just, you just follow what I'm doing, you follow what I'm specifically saying, and the specificity, isn't that a great word, specificity, <laughs> the specificity of this is remarkable, look for a man carrying a jar of water, why is that unusual? Women, women carry the water, women went to the well and got the water, you, you, we've seen several instances of that in the Gospel accounts. So a man carrying a jar of water, he'd stand out. So Jesus being very specific, I'm telling you exactly what to look for. And this guy is going to lead you to the room. And so, you know, honestly, I gave you the two options of way to look at this. We're not quite sure how we should look at this. I kind of lean toward, this is the incarnate God providentially setting everything up. I struggle a bit with Jesus set all this up, went there yesterday, talked to all these people, made these arrangements. <laughs> I just kind of struggled that that's really happened. But you could have. We just don't, the, the Bible doesn't tell us that. We just draw our own conclusions. I have never, ever, ever thought of what <laughs> No. I'm sorry. No, I overthink it. I, well, I was taught to ask questions of every verse. And you just naturally start to Think like that. Because then you get run across a critic. The critic has probably already <clears throat> thought up that question. So anyway, <laughs> thank you, Bill. Okay. am <laughs> not sure I said thank you, but I... That's, that's good. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the passage. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating... Now, I don't think I have to remind you, but the, the tables were... They could have been round or they could have been more like a rectangle. It, it could be either one. We don't know exactly. But they would recline if it's you know, kind of rectangular or perpendicular to that table or this, you know, still somewhat perpendicular. And it, they'd recline and they'd lean usually on the right hand, on the you know, elbow. To me, that is the most uncomfortable way to eat imaginable. But that is what they did in the each world. And so that's the setting. This is nothing unusual. There's nothing extraordinary about this. Then Jesus says, just look at this language. Truly, the Greek word truly is amen. I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. One who's eating with me. What would that mean? Because all 12 are eating with me. So that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. It's just one of, in other words, one of you guys is going to betray me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And again, it could have been, the the Greek verb there, it could have been at that instant, or it could mean you're all dipping in, you know, there was a big pot, and you took the bread, and you dipped it, it was made of herbs it wasn't i don't think it was very tasty but that's what they would eat and they were all doing that <clears throat> so again they don't know who it is well one does actually two do jesus does and judas does now verse 21 for the son of man goes as it is written of him the son of man goes as it is written of him that's prophecy. And when Jesus says the Son of Man goes, meaning what I'm about to do, what is about to happen to me, is fulfilling scripture. And so as it is written, there are, there are multiple passages that you could cite here, but probably, and I'm even a little audacious here to say that I know exactly what Jesus is thinking, but Probably he's referring to Isaiah 53, which is that great suffering servant passage of the servant who dies for his people, the wrath of God is poured out upon him, etc. That's probably what, what he's referring to. But notice this, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed, it would been better for that man if he had not been born now what you see here let me be theological for just a moment what you see here is the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility the son of man son of man is a messianic title it's right from Daniel 7.13 it's it's clearly messianic and what's going to happen to me the son of man, the Messiah is decreed in scripture okay therefore it would seem reasonable to conclude that this one who betrays me, according to scripture, part of the plan, he's like a robot. And he's really not accountable for his choice to betray Jesus. Right? No. No. That's not what the text says. And so you have in this, this passage that tension that you and I feel as human beings between the sovereignty of God. This is the plan. part of the plan is one of the disciples is going to betray me, but lest you think he's an automaton or a robot, he's accountable. Woe to that man. And so, I mean, I don't, maybe, Bill, this is something you didn't think much about either, but when you work through this, you think, wait a minute, this has some major questions for me. You're never going to resolve this. I've been studying this for 38 years, and you just, you can't satisfactorily resolve that tension. As you, I know, almost all of you, I've drawn on the board the railroad tracks. You know that right hand side of the track, divine sovereignty, the left hand side is human responsibility. Here you see it. And you can't resolve that. This is part of the plan. But Judas' decision to betray Jesus, which we read about in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, is something for which he's accountable. You and I won't rise up in heaven. Thanks, Judas. there you go. Thanks for contributing to my redemption. We're not gonna do that. He's not gonna be there. Well, no, <laughs> no. It's just the kind of thing that it's it's okay. All I can say is those are true. Sovereign God and responsible to choose. Well, God God is a mission. And man's free will is still free. It remains free. As you said, he's not a robot, a robot, or whatever you want to call him. He had a free will to do at that time what he wanted, but God knew, Christ knew what he was going to do, right? So they're not really at loggerheads so much. I don't know. At least that's my perceptive perception of it. So God's decision is contingent on man's decision. God's sovereignty is contingent on men's free will. That's just what you said. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I was saying that God knows what we're going to do before we do it, but man is free to do what he chooses. I see, foreknowledge mm-hmm. is not predestination. Yeah. No, that's right. I'm not sinning it. Well, while I was yet unowned uh, in my mother's room, you knew me. <laughs> <laughs> so, was it part of God's plan? Did God know that Judas was going to betray Jesus? Okay. Absolutely. Was that part of the plan? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what you're saying is it was really foreseen. God foresaw what Judas was going to do. Then God said, okay, now I'm going to set that in place and that's part of the plan. No, I wouldn't have the second part. I would, I would agree with the first part, not the second you can't have it both ways. <laughs> no, no, we're getting into the deep theological. Just to get out it's just the more, the more you, the more, honestly, you know, the more you start thinking about this, and the deeper you think about it, the more you get kind of, well, I don't, I don't know the right words to use to accurately summarize all this. See, what we're talking about here is what are the right word, human words we use to describe something? You know what I mean? You're, 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 you're trying to, and I'm not criticizing you, you're trying to work through human words to capture that tension where God, God, with his foreknowledge and his foreordination, big theological word, put all this plan together, and it included Judas. But in this, Judas is not a robot. He's a free agent who chooses but that he chooses is part of the plan. And so what the questions we're asking is, which started first, God's plan or Judas's decision? And is God's plan contingent on Judas? Well, if Judas wouldn't betray, okay, I'm gonna wait around and see who else is gonna betray him. I think, here's God in heaven, I think <laughs> Judas is gonna do it, but I'm not sure. I'm gonna wait and I and I'll see. Yeah, right. Then if it's not Jesus, it's gotta be somebody else. But I'll just wait around until somebody now, you know when you start going down that no, 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 that's not God's God's action, God's plans are not contingent on human actions. <coughs> okay, but, so we're done with this now. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but Judas had a had a track record with the Treasury. That's yeah, right from the beginning. He was not a man of integrity. Well, that's, right. integrity. that's right. That's right. And yet, Christ selected him to be part of the twelve, yeah. knowing that. Knowing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some things you can't understand. I don't. Understand. Yeah. I accept it. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. I don't understand it either. <laughs> well, there, there, there are there are no human words to that you can contextually use yeah. to to uh, and it, your head it, this. it just it reflects. It really reflects our struggle as finite temporal creatures trying to understand the mind of god and we can't do that we can know the mind. and we just we step back and say there's so much of this i don't understand but i know where all this is leading for that our praise god so we're now going to move to verse 22. <laughs> <laughs> we want to or not to? and as they were eating he took bread this would be the passover bread it's a loaf like this he took it and after blessing it broke it and gave it to them. And the blessing it would mean he would have thanked the father for. It. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given them thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let me stop there for a minute. Now, uh, Mark gives us an extremely short account of this. Matthew's account is much longer as is John John's account is really long. It's a lot of things he's talking about. But this creates a an issue and I'm going to talk about this because I think it's important. This creates an issue which has divided the Christian movement for 2000 years. This is, there is, there is tremendous disagreement. When I wrote my book on church history, I put this, uh, what originally was transparency. Do you remember what a transparency was? <laughs> it originally a transparency, and now it's a PowerPoint. These are the four major positions in the history of the church on how to look at this issue. You have, and we'll go from this side to, the, if you want a copy of this, I'll be glad to make one for you, but I wasn't going to make copies because a lot of So to say paper, and I'm an environmentalist, I want to be a good steward of the trees that we kill. Anyway, you go from the sacramental to the memorial view. The sacramental view starts with the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church reads a passage like this and says, this is the miracle of transubstantiation. When Jesus says, holds up the bread, this is my body, and then this cup, it's blood, the new covenant, all that. You are ingesting into your body the body and blood of Christ. At the miracle, when the when the uh, priest says the, the prayer of consecration and so on, takes the host out of the words contained, they call it the host. And you it becomes the body and blood of Christ. And that is called the miracle of transubstantiation. In the 16th century, a man by the name of Martin Luther could could not completely agree with that. And so he said, and his position, his hard work, is called consubstantiation. But Jesus' Jesus' body is present in that bread, and the blood is present, but it's not sacrificial. Because every time the Mass is said in the Roman Catholic Church, Jesus is being re-sacrificed. It's the sacrificial presence of Jesus in the elements. And so Luther, Luther is close to Catholicism, but not really. He's not accepting that miracle. And then Calvin and the Reformed tradition and so on have what is called the spiritual presence. Jesus is not literally present in the elements. There's no miracle there. It's just spiritually. He nourishes us spiritually as we partake of the table. And then finally, this has its origins with Ulrich Linn, another reformer, but it's called the Thanksgiving Remembrance. It's just a memorial. Nothing happens to the elements. Nothing happens when you ingest it into your body. It's just a memorial. And, of course, that seems to be, to an extent, uh, what Jesus is saying. You you do this in remembrance of me. And so this is a controversy that has divided the church. And, um, you know, for some people, it's really a big deal. For others, it isn't that big of a deal. It's become a big deal. It's funny how it's become a big issue in in the year we're in, 2021, because there are a certain group of real strong conservative Roman Catholics in the United States of America who want to deny President Biden and anyone else who supports him, the right to take communion because they have supported abortion. And so, I mean, it's just, you know, you have to be careful. I don't want to get into that. That's not, not what I'm interested in. Just that that issue, up to that time, it's, it's amazing to me. And I mean, I've been in ministry a long time. It's amazing to me how many Roman Catholics don't understand what their church teaches. I mean They really don't understand that their church teaches the miracle of transubstantiation. Now... So what, what, what the bishops in the United States have done, they've had a conference, and they're writing a whole set of papers, and they're putting a whole public relations campaign together to teach the Roman Catholic Church in America what transubstantiation is, because <laughs> they discovered it was a, there was a poll that Pew Research Institute did of Roman Catholics, and it was 60% of Roman Catholic survey did not understand what transubstantiation is, which is, if they don't understand that, they're, they're not understanding the core teaching of Roman Catholicism. I mean, that is the core. That's why you go to the Mass. It's not just to hear a, you'll, uh, hear a little homily from the priest. It's to, it's to partake of this. It. And it's, it's, it's necessary for, it's one of the sacraments, it's necessary for salvation. And so, I mean, it's just like you think, oh, my goodness. But that's the fault of the Catholic Church. They have a good job teaching what they believe. <clears throat> What's the difference between the symbol of this and the symbol of being baptized? We look at baptism as a symbol of our salvation, except in Christ. We don't actually think we died and miraculously came back. Aren't they similar? Well, I think so, Bill. I mean, that, the, these two would would say that what Jesus is speaking is speaking in metaphorical language. This is a metaphor. This bread represents my body. It's a metaphor. This cup, which contains it, represents my, my blood, sending my blood, and so on. But it's. They wanted more than a single. It's, yeah, it's the, the history of this, and I, I studied this pretty thoroughly. The history of all major Roman Catholic doctrines is the history of this being gradually accepted. This, in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, you don't find this being taught in a major way. You don't. There are a few people on the outlier, but it's not until you get to Gregory the Great in the 490s, and then you get into the 500 with Leo, and then, and then Gregory in the 490s, and 590s, excuse me, where you start to see this is now going to become a major teaching of the church. But it's not until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1212 where it's dogmatized. I mean, that doesn't mean everybody, they weren't practicing, but it's dogmatized, along with purgatory, veneration of marriage, stuff like that. Fourth line of counsels, we were really important. Now, I'm, I'm getting into some history here, and I'm just now, it's a yawner for all of you to say, <laughs> shut up, I don't care about it." But the history of this, it is, and the history of this is really important, because this divides Christians. <clears throat> this divides Christians. And it, uh, i don't know—I don't know a lot of you where you go to church and so on. So we may have several of the traditions represented here. But Lutherans, uh, good Lutherans, really, really hold this to be important. Concept is really important to them, and they are generally more informed about it than the Roman Catholic is. And today, I most of I know some of you, a number of you, where I know you go to church, your church has the memorial. To you. That's what you celebrate. You can take a communion. But I think two things are important about this. Communion is a very, very important part of our worship. That's why some churches, there aren't many left anymore, but some churches celebrate communion every Sunday. There aren't too many of those left anymore. But some churches say, well, we're going to do it once a month. Some say, we're going to do it once a quarter. And there are a few around, so we're going to do it once a year at Easter you know, or something like that. That's probably, I certainly don't want to be legalistic, but it's probably not enough. But uh, the, important, the important thing is that word remembrance. When we partake of the Lord's table, it's to cause us to remember what Jesus did for us. But there's also something in, in it's, it's, it's the Gospel of John. And it has, a, it has a backward look where we reflect and remember what Jesus did, but it has a forward look. Because Jesus says, I want to drink of this wine. I want to eat of this bread or drink of this wine until I do so in my Father's kingdom. So that will be a part. And generally, most people understand that to be associated with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which again, I don't want to talk about that right now necessarily. So it has both, whenever I lead communion, I always end with it has a backward look, but it has a forward look. And I really believe we should end communion triumphantly with a great, robust hymn. We start remembering what it cost God, it cost his son for our salvation. But we celebrate it, we remember it, but we look forward to doing this again with Jesus, which is, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's one of those things to get excited about. Wow! That's going to be part of our predestination, our predetermined destiny for God. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 25, I will not drink again of the fruit of the land until I drink, when I drink it in the kingdom of God. It, that's future. That's going to be a part of the celebration. And uh, again, I, this is not what Jesus specifically is specifically talking about, but in my, per, my view and perspective, this has to do with the married supper wine, which... Right now, what I'm gonna talk about. Any questions about any of this? Or can I go on? Did you, Jim? I'm sorry, did you call it the fourth lateral council? Fourth Lateral Lateran Council L-A-T-E-R-A-N. Lateran is yeah. our district and we're all in Rome is big church so there a the Lateran Church. That's where the council is held. Okay. Jim to make a copy of that, I'll set it up. Yes, yeah, I will. All right. In the way that, I'm old and forgetting I'm old and forgetting. I'm and forgetting I'll send you another picture of it and it to Glenn and he can send it out. What's that? I can make I'll send it out. Right See right what spot the spot. Picture of it's easy. All right. What are you saying? And then I want to say what you I will doing? take care of it if you <laughs> if you like. Well, you mean you will take this right and take here. care of it? I'll do it right here on the table at the end of the day. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Is that what you were saying too? Okay. <laughs> and I'll share it too. Sure. I thought these guys were speaking in tongues. I couldn't. <laughs> no, we're speaking in text. Yeah, right. Yeah, text. Let's continue. Verse twenty-six. Now remember, they're in the upper room. they just They're in the in the ending, celebrating the Passover meal. And when they had sung a hymn, that's a strategic silence. When they had sung a hymn, that must be. Oh, let's think about that for a minute. What are they singing? Joy to the world? Joy in a Major? No, (laughs) No, they're singing the Halal songs. This is, now I think probably this is what they do. When you begin the Passover, you're singing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. The Halal means ascent. It's what the pilgrims would sing as they're getting toward Jerusalem. Coming from Jericho, walking up the steep road, walking up the Jericho road to Jerusalem, they're singing these psalms. Hallelujah! The You're preparing to go to the temple, and then at the end of the Passover meal, you would sing from it. could Not all of these; it could be a select group of these. Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18. One of those four songs you would sing. So un- undoubtedly, in my judgment, they are singing one or two of these last. 115 to 118, that block. So, I mean, it's just not spontaneous singing. This was part of the Jewish ritual. And Jesus is following this. That's why they're eating Passover. And Jesus said to them, now just, just imagine what it would have been like for these guys to hear this. You will all fall away. Now, that Greek phrase, fall away, is it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. He's not saying you're all going to lose your salvation. That's not what he means. You are going to be offended. You are going, you are going to be so shocked that what is going to happen to me, that, that, that fear is going to overcome you. Fear instead of faith is going to overcome you. You are going to be so shocked shocked, and so offended that you will leave me. Your loyalty to me will collapse. That's what he's saying to them. This isn't about their salvation. This isn't about their state of salvation. It's saying because of the horrible things that they're going to see happen. And all that is about their fear and that's exactly why they all run. <laughs> and we're gonna, you know the story Peter. Peter gets absolutely overwhelmed by fear by a young girl saying you were with Jesus. And so he's just saying, your loyalty to me is going to collapse. Just imagine this guy's hearing that. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus, Jesus is quoting from Zechariah chapter 8, Verse, uh, or chapter 18, verse seven. So he's quoting from one of the Messianic prophecies. Zechariah. Did I say 18? I meant 13, 13, I meant 13, excuse me. But after I am raised up, meaning his resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, I, I want you to I want you to see two things here. Number one, that their loyalty is going to collapse is also a fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus quotes it, Zechariah 13:7. But then he says, But I will meet you in Galilee. Now that's exactly what happened. And when you follow the chronology of what happened after Jesus is resurrected, there are 10 post resurrection appearances of, by Jesus, to various people, various groups, and so on. But one of them is where he meets the whole crew up in the Shore, shore of Sea of Galilee, and John's gospel records that. You remember that? They're out fishing, and Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. And then they, and it's a marvelous passage because that's where Peter's restored. But anyway, so I mean, you can just see all that's going to happen to Jesus. You, you step back and say, you know, he's still in control of all of us because he's laying out what's going to happen. You're going to fall away. You're going to loyal, your Lord is going to collapse. But I will understand that because I'll see you in Galilee after his resurrection. I can't imagine these guys said, okay, Jesus was taken out of this sea in a couple of days. That's not how they're responding. They don't even, what what is he saying to us? And so now you have the impulsive one stand up. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Here's the loyal, yet impulsive. Sometimes, incendiary, inflammatory Peter pledging his loyalty to Jesus. Jesus said, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, this is Peter, he has said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny. And then Mark adds, and they all said the same. So Peter starts and they all say, "That's us, Jesus. We are not going to leave you, which is really wonderful that they pledge the loyalty, but revealing they're about to all run away from Jesus. It's only a matter of a couple of hours. I'll be scared. <clears throat> all right <clears throat> This is called a coffee break. And since I have a cup of coffee, I'm exerting the authority to take one, thanks for Fred. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was on the east side of Temple Mount, right at the base of the Kidron Valley. Gethsemane means press of oil. If you ever go to that part of Jerusalem with me, I'll show you where Gethsemane was, and I'll show you an olive tree that dates from the time of Jesus. There's a big fence around it; they're really protecting it, but it's over two thousand years old. Because uh, olive oil and olives and olive oil is a very, very, very important commodity in in the in the ancient world. And so this was an area where not only were there olive trees, but there was an olive press and gate. Semine, that's how you pronounce that in, in Greek, was where there was an olive press. Now, what we know from some of the other Gospels, this was a favorite place for Jesus to go with his disciples. Now, this is, this is in the dark of night. We, it's hard to know exactly what time it is, but this is, they've had the Passover meal, etc. They're now crossing into Friday. Now, crossing into Friday, sit here while I pray, he says to him. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. So the the scenario seems to be that he takes them all. Judas has already left them. He takes them all, and they get to the edge of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, and he says, I'm going over here to pray. You guys wait here. And he says, oh, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Remember, Peter, James, and John are the inner circle of three. Jesus' disciples, an inner circle of three, then the 12, then the 70, then the 120. They're the various numbers that you read about that were the disciples of Jesus. But Peter, James, and John, it's really amazing because you would think, the others would say, I'm offended. Why aren't you taking me? I'm pretty sure most of them thought that way. Don't you think? Where are Peter, James, and John taken by Jesus up to the mountain of transfiguration? It's the sovereign Lord deciding whom He's going to take. Who's going to protest that? And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In my Bible, I underlined those words at the end of verse 30. It's hard. It's hard to translate those two words. They're very intense words. And it's like this would be a modern idiom, and I don't know if it even it might also be offensive, but. You can almost say Jesus is starting to emotionally come apart. I mean, this is these are words of emotion. Remember, he's the God Man. He's not just a man; he's the God Man. He knows what's about to happen, and so he's emotionally just coming apart here. This is this is overwhelming for him, and as as the God Man, his humanity. He is experiencing all of the emotion and trauma because he knows what's going to happen to him. And he's never had this separation before. Well, that's you? part of what will happen when, when he actually dies. And, and, and Father, this is really hard to understand to see a but that's right. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. I'm in verse 34, even to death. And look, notice this command. This is a command. Remain here and watch. And the word watch has the idea of a prayerful, not a sleepy watch, but a prayerful watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. And there is the only time we read of Jesus addressing the Father as Abba. However, in Galatians four and in Romans eight, in both of those are written by Paul. In both those passages, Paul says you have the right to call God Abba. So it's an extraordinary term of intimacy and fellowship. And so he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now. The word "cup" there is the one you got to circle because that that is Old Testament prophetic uh, language. It is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup that's mentioned in the um, in the Old Testament text Isaiah 51, for example, verse 17 and following. I think it is. It's the it's the it's it's the cup where Jesus will become the object of God's wrath. You can understand why he would, isn't there, enough, it's almost like he's saying to, to the father, isn't there another way we can do this? Must I go through this? All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Not yet notice the caveat. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words we just read about in verse 36. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Very familiar words. Maybe one comment when he says it is enough. I I know of at least six articles written on this. We don't know what he meant by that. What does he mean it's enough? What's enough? Enough time to sleep? Is that what he meant? Enough time to pray? Is that what he meant? Enough time to, to uh, wrestle and pray to the Father? So maybe it means all those things. But the little phrase, it is enough. I've crossed the threshold. There's no turning back. The betrayer is here, i.e., Judas is here. So this isn't a rebuke of the disciples, of these three, I should say. It isn't a rebuke of them. He's not judging them. He's just saying, okay, guys, you couldn't stay awake. I know you're tired. Your eyes are heavy. And this is this is early morning. This is This is past midnight. We're early morning of Friday. I know I I'm pretty sure at my age I would have fallen asleep. None, I know none of you. You're very robust. You're you're you are you you do not have that struggle. I used to be able to study till midnight. I can't do that. At nine o'clock, I'm struggling to stay awake if I'm reading. Oh my god, it's horrible. <laughs> Remove this curse from me, oh God. That's you know, terrible. All right. I'm turn the page here. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word 41 times in this gospel. Immediately. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Who is this? Is this a Roman cohort? No. These are the temple police. The Sanhedrin. Yeah. These are the temple police that were paid for and responsible to the Sanhedrin. We don't know how many there would be uh, I mean, this isn't like, you know, if it's Roman, we can, by the name, we can kind of get an idea how many. We don't know how many of this is, but, man, I, it's a pretty substantial group. I, I can't even postulate a number, but it's certainly more than just two or three. This is a several dozen, maybe, but it's, and, and Jean, excuse me, Mark uses the word crowd, how it's translated here in the ESV in verse 43, which is a substantial number of people. Now, remember a couple of things: it is pitch dark. We're in the early morning hours of Friday. There weren't floodlights at Gethsemane. They didn't have spotlights from the because here's here's Gethsemane. The temple's right up here, way way out here in a very deep valley. Temple's whatever. They didn't have floodlights shining down. This is pitch dark. Possibly, although the Bible doesn't say that, possibly Jesus and the disciples had those little oil lance, lantern type things, which we found a lot of those in archaeology. Could have been, but that's not a lot. And so Judas had agreed, and this is what tells us in verse 44. Jesus had agreed on something. I kiss the man that you want to arrest. Because it's dark, and it, because it's so dark, you can sort of identify a figure. But is that Joel or is that Rob? I'm not sure. They both have dark hair. Their face, they, you know, I can't tell who that is. So, what, what, what Judas is doing, this is the sign I'll kiss the guy whom you want to arrest. And that's what it tells us. Betrayal had given him a sign the one I kiss, seize him, ate him away under guard. Verse 45, when he came, he went up to him and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But the one, excuse me, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. If you go back to John chapter 18, verse 10, that's Peter. And Peter cuts off the ear, and we even have his name in John 18, Malchus. And Jesus then john's account jesus and heals that man's heir instantaneously and jesus said to him have you come out against come out as against a robber that that greek word is lace i would prefer that they translate it have you come out against us against a rebel a seditionist that's the word used to barabbas as you'll see in a minute so have you come out to arrest a rebel with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Okay, again, as we've seen three times in our study this, this morning, Jesus three times has cited scripture. Here he's citing it again. He's referring to Isaiah 53, verse 3, and verse 7 through 9. And so again, this you see the plan, the rescue plan has been launched. And bang, scripture after scripture after scripture is being fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Question. It's a plural pronoun. Who's the they? The disciples. Isn't that amazing? Jesus just said to them about an hour and a half ago, well, maybe about two or three hours ago, <laughs> your loyalty is going to is gonna collapse. Jesus has been arrested by the temple police, and what happens? Their loyalty to Jesus collapses and they're running. I mean, it's just and I'm not I'm not being critical of the disciple. I think I'd have been the first one running. I just can't imagine what this must have looked like. Now, verse 51 and 52 is unique to mark this isn't in matthew it is isn't in luke and it isn't in john and a young man the greek word is naniskos which means he's between 24 and 40 years old a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body and they seized him but he left the linen cloth And ran away naked. You know who expositors think this was? Mark. This is Mark, because John Mark lived in Jerusalem with his mother. His mother was a very wealthy woman. She would she her home would eventually become a house church in Jerusalem. But her her home is where they will meet after the resurrection. And so, again, out of modesty, Mark just says a young man, because he fits that description of Maniscus, which is the Greek word used there. It's just, it's an intriguing because that's it. That's it. It's like one of these, you know, quick, he's he's on the scene, he's going, we don't hang about it. But most expositors think this is autobiographical, because John Mark lived in Jerusalem. Mark, John Mark. Lived in Jerusalem. He was related to, you know, to Barnabas, who would later, as you know, be part of the missionary journeys of Paul, and so on, which tells because his mother was a devout follower of Jesus. She's one of the women who supported Jesus financially, supported Jesus' ministry. So it's just one of those intriguing things. I mean, I'm not gonna die for that. I wouldn't go to the wall for that. But it's 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 like a walk-on is done. He's done. done. But as a young man, he's just telling us. He, his mother, was a follower of Jesus. His mother financially supported Jesus. John Mark is not a disciple. He is not a disciple of Jesus. But for a reason, we have no idea of how this occurs. But he follows Jesus. He doesn't run. He follows Jesus, and they seize him, and... Because it's very early morning hours. Remember, I told you that we've crossed from Thursday now into Friday when the early morning hours. He's gotten out of bed because this ruckus, this would have caused an enormous stir. So he, he is in his nightgown. He's in his pajamas, the way we would talk about it. And he, they, they seize him, and he's, they're not successful. He runs away naked. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary walk-on, and that's it. I'm just suggesting to you, again, most expositors believe this is Mark. So is this is like Mark. Matthew, Mark. Is this Mark? This is the Mark, the one we're studying. This is the guy who wrote this book. This is John Mark. As I said, his mother was a financial supporter, loyal to Jesus, one of, the, one of the key women. All right. Now, verse 53. It is about 3 a.m. Friday morning. And they led Jesus, you now that they would be the temple police who were arrested. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And all that is telling us is this is largely most of the Sanhedrin. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background here. And, and let me put a couple of things on the table and then we'll, we'll move into the rest of the text. When you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, we can conclude this. Jesus Christ had six trials. He had three religious trials and three civil trials. Luke tells us that he appeared before Annas, who had been the high priest of of the council, the high priest of, of Judaism in the first century, but Rome had deposed him in AD 15. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, replaced him. But because Annas was still alive, he was the real power behind Caiaphas. Am I confusing you or are you with me? <clears throat> Mark doesn't tell us about that trial. Luke does tell us about that trial. So this high priest is, he's appearing before Caiaphas, because the Annas trial occurs very short, and he goes to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the really functioning high priest at this time. Rome had deposed his father-in-law in in 8.15. So he's now, this is on, this home of Caiaphas is on Mount Zion. It's to the north, excuse me, southwest of Temple Mount. So, I really shouldn't do this because of the time, but I can't help myself. All right, here's Gethsemane, okay? Here's Temple Mount, now, this is, notice, 2,500 feet above sea level. There's a deep valley here. This is the cemetery, okay? Now, what they would have done is they would have walked down the Kidron Valley. There's a road here across and up right here. This is the house of Caiaphas. Next time you go to Jerusalem with me, I'll show you where that was. You know exactly where it was. So now, they travel quite a, it's a fairly good distance, 3 or in the morning. And it's a large home with a very large courtyard because the high priest wealthy. He? he had a, a lot of influence and a lot of friends. So this is the second religious trial of Jesus. His political trials, he has two trials before Pilate and he has a trial before Herod Antipas, who's the, the Roman recognized governor of Galilee and he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. Only Luke tells us about the trial before Herod Antipas. All of the trials were illegal. None of the trials followed the due process procedures that the Roman Empire had set down. And Peter had been following him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. I told you, this is a fairly palatial home with a large courtyard. So Peter, unlike the others, did completely run away. Now he was following at a distance And how was he able to get into the courtyard of the high priest? He's a Galilean fisherman. John's family, John's gospel tells us, that John's family, uh, um, sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, was a very wealthy fisherman, had a lot of influence. And John is in the courtyard, and he gets Peter in. That's how Peter gets in there. And so, he was sitting. This I'm in the middle of verse 40, 54. He was sitting with the guards. What guards? The temple police. And warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council, of course, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. There are 71 members of the Sanhedrin. 23 members had to be present for a quorum. So we have no idea how many are here at this trial. It is highly doubtful that all 71 are there, but it's at least 23 because that was the quorum required for the Sanhedrin. Now, I want you to think about something, then I'm going to have to stop. In AD 6, when Rome deposed Herod's, uh, Herod's son, who was a real jerk, uh, and, and made Judea a Roman province, they took away the right of the Jews to perform capital punishment. So if, if Jesus is gonna be executed, he has got to be executed for an, an, an offense, a crime for which Rome executes. Now the Jews are going to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Rome won't execute for blasphemy. They've got to get Jesus on the charge of sedition. That Jesus is the head of something that is opposing the Roman Empire. He's a threat to Rome. If you want to know how they did that, you got to come back next week. Okay love the cliffhangers alright I'm going to leave alright would that be alright even if it isn't alright i got to leave I'm going to pray <laughs> and let you go here Thank you. Father we're thankful for our study in the gospel of Mark as we're looking at a very familiar part of scripture but we're seeing some unique things that Mark shares with us and we thank you for the privilege you give us to study be with these men as we go our separate ways Guys online and guys here in the room, we pray for each one. Lord, they're precious to you. They're trophies of your grace. May they represent you well in their words and in their deeds. We want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Motivate us to action for your name and for your glory. Commit each one to you in Christ's name. Amen.